Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of MA Architects Make It Innovative, featuring deep dive discussions on the world of innovation as it relates to the built environment. Today, we will be interacting with you, and we need your complete honesty. Like life, you're going to get what you give, and the more honest you are, the more you're going to get from this episode. Sound good? You ready? Yes. We want you to ask yourself, in a moment of truth, are you really open-minded? 2020 has definitely been one of the strangest years of most of our lives, but in a lot of ways, we're finally all living consciously. We've had this call to humanity and are aware of things that are happening and things that need to be changed in a way that we've never really noticed before. It's a challenging time, but what challenges you will change you, and the discomfort felt this year is just a sign of the greater change to come. With all of that in mind, it also means there are a lot of options, ideas, and opinions and concepts to consider. Especially this time of year. Eeks, Facebook galore, right? We've seen a lot of opinions, but I'm at the point personally where I'm limiting social media time and considering a full hiatus here shortly as November quickly approaches. But if I'm challenging myself to be open-minded, is that really the answer? We were inspired to explore the behavioral psychology behind that and ask if it's really the content that's overwhelming or if it's the way we as individuals read and interpret it. It only felt right to welcome our very own MA Architects, Kevin Mullinex, with a dual degree in psychology and architecture, here to explore cognitive bias, open-mindedness, and teaching us the lost art of making sense. But first, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's make sure you're as invested in the topic as we are. And why do you care about being open-minded? Especially if maybe you're not already open-minded. New research shows open-minded people have an enhanced ability to change their perspectives on things and demonstrate more growth over time. They're also more ready to embrace novelty, new people, new places, and new experiences. In other words, they see the world as a place to be explored, a place they're willing to let change them, a place of curiosity and potential growth. That means more resiliency, more adaptability, and a greater ease in moving through the challenging times, like 2020. This is particularly important in the business world, where flexibility and the ability to actually listen to others matters. All good leaders know that the ability to listen and take multiple viewpoints into account is a valuable, bordering on critical skill. And truly open-minded people are greater candidates for leadership roles and accelerated job growth. This is similar to one of the bigger workplace trends we saw a year or so ago, the shifting understanding of IQ to EQ, basically where, you know, people who have a higher EQ, which is the emotional quotient or emotional intelligence, were shown to be better leaders due to their empathy. I mean, a direct quote from Martha Stewart even says, without an open mind, you can't be successful. I know she might not be our number one person we quote often, but seriously, she knows what she's doing in some capacities. And neurologically, the gate that lets information through that reaches consciousness has a different level of flexibility for open-minded people and lets more information through than for the average person. So that means open-minded people are able to get more from people and from situations. In other words, they really are living their best life. It's incredible how much we can train our brains and the opportunity for growth we have in the choices we make each day. So welcome Kevin here uh, to help us better understand open-mindedness, how to embrace it, and how it will bring us more success in design and in life than we've ever experienced before. Cue the applause. (laughs) Kevin, just a heads up, you guys. If you don't hear me talk for a while, it's because I'm literally sitting here in awe with my jaw. Dropped to the ground in everything that Kevin is saying. He's seriously one of the most interesting and intelligent people I have ever met. And I cannot wait to share his thought-provoking conversations with you. 
right? So let's introduce Kevin, taking a deep breath. After, <laughs> after 20 years of design experience on the West Coast in California, Kevin brought his expertise and experience to Columbus, along with a refreshing perspective and a dynamic and energetic personality that captivates those in which he interacts with. An award-winning registered architect, his undergraduate degree in psychology set him apart in the field, granting him an adeptness in garnering consensus and collaborative communication among all team members throughout a project's process. His resilience through the recession taught him ingenuity and it earned him experience in controlling the comprehensive project cycle. This experience cultivated an adaptability and a deeply rooted design ingenuity that offers clients innovative solutions to inevitable obstacles. Driven by honest communication, Kevin's quick-witted solution-oriented nature is valued, and he prides himself on his ability to assist clients in clarifying and focusing their ideas to help clients bring their visions into reality. So Kevin, give us your elevator pitch about your work as an architect uh, with a degree in psychology and what you find most rewarding about it. Okay, so I guess um, I, I've always looked at architecture as being sort of an expression of creativity and an expression of what could be the highest human potential. Um, my favorite architecture is cathedral architecture, that architecture that aspires to to reach something else, to to evoke feelings outside of yourself that that give you pause and and make you think of things greater than our day-to-day -day struggle. And of course, we obviously, if we're designing a dentist's office or something, that's that's not going to be the th sort of thing that's brought to mind. Um, but on a, on a much smaller scale, someone who is investing a lot of time and energy into designing their, their custom home, their dream home, their forever home, a term that I personally hate, but that's what most people say. Um, those people are super passionate about these projects and being able to take someone's goals and their aspirations and their dreams when they themselves don't have the vocabulary to, to, to state them in a sentence. Being able to take that, interpret those for them in a way that they feel inspired by, and then to translate that into something built. Um, I mean, that's like giving birth to, to any creative project, a piece of art, or in this case, you know, a dream that someone has and then, and then lives in. Um, there's a beauty to that, and there's a real uh, sense of, of creation, and I think that's what really drew me to architecture to begin with. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you filter out the 95% of our job, it's basically codes and jurisdiction <laughs> and all of that. Every project has some aspect of, of that sort of creation and that ability to translate a dream um, that I, I, I kind of cling on to that in even the most mundane projects. It's such an awesome way to think of architecture. It's a really powerful tool and you're incredible at it. Clearly fangirl forever, Kevin. Aww. So now that we know your professional experience, we want our listeners to get to hear a little bit more about you personally. You ready? I'm ready. Well, do it. If you had a spontaneous day off, what's the first thing you'd do? Uh, well, given that it's COVID, I would go somewhere, anywhere. I would go anywhere. That anywhere? Go anywhere. <laughs> the bar is low. I would low. go to the DMV. <laughs> I would go anywhere. Do they call it a DMV here? Yeah. No, it's a BMV the here. B the BMV. I yeah. would go to the BMV. Wow, if the I had bar an opportunity, has been lowered. Really, it's really lowered. I would go to McDonald's. bar. <laughs> we can make that happen for you. As a thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> what is the best thing that happened this year? So, ironically, COVID. Because Ooh. COVID has taught me that I was really jaded. It was. It had taught me that I was tired of going out to the same old restaurants and ordering the same old food, and now I would die to go out to those restaurants and order that same food. It's taught me that I, I had failed. I, I had stopped appreciating um, my the the blessed 
state of my life and how lucky I truly am and had begun to just kind of take everything for granted in a lot of ways and uh, stepping back and realizing, hey, you know what, this particular person now that um, I only see once in a blue moon who I just sort of took for granted before and now I value their time and I learned to appreciate that time. And I think, um, I think I'll be better for it as a person. And I would like to think that our nation would be better for it in the long run if we can see that as being sort of a reset for ourselves. Oh, I love that so much. What a beautiful perspective. And last question. Okay. What is the change you most hope to see from the growth in 2020? Well, I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's the change I most hope to see. I, I hope that there's a lasting effect which causes me to have a more profound appreciation for the simpler things and to really count my blessings and see, you know, okay, well, you know, going out to a fine dining experience is actually a luxury for um, an immense percentage of the Earth's population and, and to not lose sight of that and to be thankful for that every time. Very humbling. And uh, the year of awakening, we, we said it before. Yeah. And it's Call everything. the humanity. Yes, I yeah. love it. I mean, shoot, you're ready to go get your license and you're excited about it. So I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting thing to think about how we are stepping back a little bit. You yeah. Know, how we are prioritizing the things that were, like you said, taken for granted. And I really, I think that's a great way to look at the year right now. You have to look at the bright side, right? Because exactly. there's so much to be depressed about. It's really easy to go there if you want to. Exactly. um, I always feel like, and you probably know better than me, but what you look for, you'll find. Even, you know, Bad Harmeinhoff, that phenomenon of coincidence, and where if you're like, oh my gosh, I really want an orange, and all of a sudden you start seeing oranges everywhere, you know? Or if you look for yellow cars on the road, then you see yellow cars everywhere. So very similarly, if you're looking for things to be upset about, you'll find them. And this year is chock full, but just, just the same, there's a lot of light this year. And there are a lot of great stories and a lot of amazing things. You hear these kids taking care of their neighbors, mowing their lawns, their older neighbors or their veterans or, you know, and there's some really beautiful things happening out there. I even think a lot of the social justice movements and stuff, that's, that's more light and love than it is anything else. Oh yeah. At its root. Yeah. At its root. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think what's interesting is that kind of parlays into what we want to talk about today. Exactly. You know, what people are looking for and what they are unaware of that they are actually putting out into uh, their universe Absolutely. to bring back to themselves. For the good or the bad. Exactly. Yes. It all kind of like starts to revolve around this topic of cognitive bias, right? Yes. And Sam, you just basically described cognitive bias. Which I, have to, I don't even yes. think you meant to, but that was actually a description of it. So give us that definition then. Okay. So at its root, um, a, a popular definition of a cognitive bias is a blind spot, a blind spot in your thinking. I don't like to look at it that way. Um, I'm sure both of you have had the experience of putting on yellow, or the rose-colored glasses. In this case, we'll say yellow glasses because this was my experience. Where you put on yellow glasses, and for the first hour or two, everything has a slightly yellow tint to it. And at some point, your vision accommodates the yellow filter. And you begin to see the sky, the color you normally see the sky. It's that deep blue. And you can see the, the green of the trees. And you have to wear these yellow-tinged glasses for about three or four hours for this to happen. And then you forget you're wearing them. And then at some point you take the glasses off and everything's suddenly so much different. But you had adjusted to seeing reality the way you usually perceive it, even though you had these filters on. And so 
cognitive biases for me are filters. There can be any number of filters that sit in front of your perception of how things occur to you, how people occur to you, how events occur to you, and you make decisions subconsciously based on the information that's coming through these filters, and you're filtering out a lot of this information. And if you remove those filters, then you're removing the biases that inform you of, and you're not aware of them until you right. remove them, just like the yellow glasses. You forget you're wearing them until you take them off. But it's one of those things. No one can tell you, hey, you're wearing yellow tinted glasses if you don't think you are. No one can, no one can take, teach you how to unbias yourself. It's something that's like a, re a realization. We've all had those moments yeah. where mm -hmm. we're stricken by a realization and that just suddenly stuns us, literally stuns us. And you, get, you feel your brain get a little hot. And then you're like, and then for a couple seconds, you can't even think of anything because you're like literally this stunned realization. And from that moment on, you're never the same person again because you, you have awoken to one of the filters that's sort of controlling you. I love that visual. And I love that that is literally our goal for this podcast. I want whoever's listening right now to leave All feeling of you. changed. Yes. Yes. So I'm so curious, <laughs> where does that cognitive bias come from? Where do those yellow or rose or whatever tinted colored sunglasses, where do they come from? So uh, that's a good question about where they originate. There, there are various schools of thought on this, but the most basic origin is that it's a survival mechanism. You know, your, your caveman friend gets eaten by a tiger, and that tiger growled before it leapt out and ate your friend. And so therefore, it's in your best interest to think, whatever growls can eat me. And that's a cognitive bias. Not everything that growls is going to eat you or even could eat you. However, it's better to have that idea and avoid getting eaten than to not have that idea. And if we, if we take that out of sort of like the survivalist mode into a more modern society, um, biases are great ways to shortcut your brain's natural tendency to make sense of things. So for instance, we we are just we're accustomed to residential front doors opening in. Mm -hmm. You never you don't even think about it. You never think about it. You don't have to think about it because you've already classified this in your brain as something we don't need to think about. But all of us have gone up to that one house and tried to open the door and ran smacked into the door because it didn't open. And for that one second, you had to challenge your reality as you were like, "Oh, wait a minute. This is an exception to the rule." But the majority of the time, mass majority in this case, you never get challenged and you never see the exception to the rule. So the rule is this subconscious rule yeah. that you think always applies until suddenly it doesn't. And so that way, I mean, it keeps you from being in a, a completely stagnant person, inability to act. If you, if you get up in the morning and you had to see every single thing as being brand new and you couldn't stereotype things and you couldn't make immediate judgments about things, it would be too difficult to even walk across the room. Uh, you learned that stuff when you're an infant, how to deal with certain things, how to expect certain things, sure. expectation. We expect the floor to be there when I go and step again. So those things, so I think it's, it's, it's almost like um, it does these biases disservice to think of them as being negative. They actually help us and they help us out and they help us get where we are. It's when we use those to judge others or when we use them to make critical decisions that negatively impact another person's options or another person's um, intellect or their contribution, that then it becomes something we really need to become aware of. Or it seems like even limit your own thought. Yes. If you're like, this is how, you know, to your point, the front door, that's a simple example, but if you're like, oh, it always opens in, 
I'm going to have my front door open in. Why can't you have it open out? You know, and maybe right. that is the answer to innovation is to really peel back that cognitive bias and say, I don't know what I believe in. You know, I'm, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to evolve and, you know, adapt and absorb as much as I can around me to see about that door opening out, you know, or a different way. Or it, It's super interesting to think that we could be the greatest limit on ourselves. Absolutely. And that is a specific um, cognitive bias that you just talked about. Kevin, we're vibing. We are vibing. <laughs> I'm just yeah. sitting back here, people, just watching this go back and forth. It's amazing. So that's actually called the functional fixedness bias. And that bias is, uh, is relevant to when we see an object and we think we already know what it does or what it uses, that we don't think outside the box. For instance, we see uh, a nail and we see a hammer. The hammer hammers the nail in. If we don't have a nail, or if we don't have a hammer, how are we going to get this nail into the wall? Well, there are many ways. I could pick up a rock. I could use a wrench. Mm -hmm. I could do all these other things. But we, as human beings, tend to have functional fixedness. And we tend to value those people, those designers, who can think outside the box. And they they um, use materials or methods in new and interesting ways that no one has done before. And we see that as being um, actually better than a designer who, who cannot think outside the box. That's a valued trait. And so that's one place in architecture where we definitely see uh, a bias that, that affects basically how we build buildings, how we design buildings, uh, and then even how they're implemented. So can you let our listeners, like, some pro tips, life hacks, how can they be more curious, I guess? I don't know what the word would be. How could they explore what options are without confining themselves to what that, co you know, cognitive bias is that already exists? Yeah, I mean, you Give can... Give us all the secrets. <laughs> You could lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And, and th there isn't any way to open someone else's eyes. And I think there's a trap in thinking that open-mindedness is this thing you can define. I, I, it's, it's not a destination. Every generation thinks they're more open-minded than the previous one, and they are. Mm -hmm. You know, our parents were more open-minded than their parents. We're more open-minded than our parents. And our kids, the future generations, will look at us and think that we are so close-minded and so stodgy and they'll be right yeah. and it's this ever-evolving thing you know cognitive biases were only discovered in the 70s but now we have a list that's like 180 biases wow. long and i'm sure that there are some really big deep-seated ones that we haven't even discovered yet because we'll need to conquer the others just to be able to see that they exist like just we'll have to get far enough into our own understanding so I think the thing about being open-minded is that, first of all, you have, to, you have to want to be. You know, if you're not a person who wants to learn, if you're not somebody who wants to experience life and wants to see new cultures and go other, you know, go other places and, and be confronted with that, then you're already limiting yourself. You know, those people tend to be the people that will eventually see their biases. Some people don't want to see their biases. Um, you know, the, as we were talking about before the podcast started, reactivism, you know, when, when someone is confronted with a piece of information that they don't like, uh, you know, wear a mask. So they don't wear a mask just because they don't want to be told mm -hmm. not to wear a mask yeah. or to wear a mask. Um, that's a, a cognitive bias that we see all the time in people. Um, and, you know, if, or, or which is one of my favorites is um, the uh, blind spot bias, where you think you don't have any biases, but everybody else does. Mm. That's it's like great. someone's like, I'm not crazy. They're the craziest. <laughs> right. No, that's a great question, though, right? Like, I think a truly open-minded person at some point has to ask themselves, am I the crazy one? Mm -hmm. It's a level of self-awareness. Also, age-old, 
advice that I was given by a very wise person. If you have a problem with everyone, you're probably the problem. You know, probably the problem. <laughs> you're the common denominator. Right. So maybe you need to be a little bit more open-minded and release some of those cognitive bias and think, where is that coming from? But it's interesting, especially this time of year, right? Because we're so close to the election. And just life in general, this year is a pressing time. It's a very challenging time. And people can sometimes huddle in and just stay with what they know because that's what they feel comfortable with. We all know life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You know, and you had shared with me a long time ago, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's probably because you're learning. It's probably because you're growing. So I'm curious, this idea of selective exposure where people prefer information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs. I think it's a really, really interesting thing that I'm really fascinated with right now. And then also cognitive closure, which is where people really need certainty in an uncertain world. They need cognitive closure. So I think those two things paired together, but can also be really dangerous when paired together. Because if you keep reading articles that are reaffirming what you already believe to be true, instead of something from the opposing party or something from an opposing viewpoint, you're only further solidifying that one thought that you had instead of expanding and saying this and that could coexist, you know, no different than you can be mourning and happy at the same time, you know, or you could be angry and healing at the same time you know they, they, these things can coexist and I think this is a new way of thinking that's coming with psychology and behavioral psychology today but I'm curious about your thoughts especially on selective exposure where those people are preferring information that confirms pre-existing beliefs so I think that's a really interesting question and I, and I do have an example from my own life and what I, one of the things is that all the cognitive biases fit into like five different categories and one of those categories is the too much information category there's too much going on there's too much to know there's too much to see and so therefore you have certain biases that deal with those deal with the, the overwhelming amount of information and so from my own experience <clears throat> I used to when I lived in California I would basically rely on certain lobbyist groups that I thought most and best represented my own beliefs to tell me how to vote because I didn't have the time mm -hmm. to research all these people to do all this stuff and so I as a shortcut I would say, well, I know that I feel this way about these about these particular you know issues, mm -hmm. and and so this this group does as well, and so therefore I'm going to vote the way they think I should vote, given that information. Yeah. And of course, what ended up happening was, um, at least in California, these fake groups started coming out that would send uh, flyers that looked just like they had the same kind of logo, the same almost everything, and everything would be exactly the way you would vote, except for like one thing. Whatever issue it was, they wanted you to vote a different way on. Interesting. And so you had to suddenly, suddenly, and that for me was like the beginning of the realization that, okay, it's, it's a whole new age, and truth is relative, and you know you you can't necessarily count on anything you're being told which makes things a lot harder because mm -hmm. we just don't have the time to do all the research ourselves and so i think i think what you're asking is basically comes as a root of that mm -hmm. who do you trust anymore mm -hmm. you know you choose someone to trust and then um, by investing your time and your energy and sometimes your money in that group or in that person then you are reinforcing the desire to be right within yourself and it's a lot easier to let that group or organization steer you down a path you might not have originally agreed to. 
It's so interesting because naive realism is this idea that it leads individuals to believe their perception of reality is the only accurate view and that those who disagree are simply uninformed, irrational. And we can see a lot of that right now, which is a huge bias. And I think it's interesting because sometimes people forget we all have a completely different lens that we see the world through. Now, no two people's lens are the same. My brother and I share 100% besides a chromosome DNA. We do not see the world the same, right? We were raised the same. We were treated the same. We still see the world differently. And I think that people forget those are their lives life experiences that they are seeing their life filtered through. Those are their glasses that they're putting on, right, is the experiences that they've had. So maybe they've had a great experience with the situation, but somebody else had a completely different experience. It doesn't mean both can't be true. Right. And both are not reality. Right. And sometimes I think it's scary right now, especially to feel like, all oh, my life I've thought this. And then you hear these stories of other things that are challenging what you've always known to be true, and you feel almost a little bit lost. But it, that's really growth, in my opinion. And I think that's when you really embrace that and think, okay, let me explore that feeling. Let me sit here and see what I can learn from these other people to expand my mind. That's, to me, when you start to become open-minded. Yeah. That's when you start to see the world in a new, creative, and curious way where you're much more curious than you are critical. Absolutely. Well, and, and to, to take that back to one of your earlier questions about you know how people can, can become more open-minded and how they can expand that consciousness, one of the ways is simply to imagine, okay, what would it take for me to believe what they believe? This person that you disagree with, you know, how, how did their experiences bring them to this point? Can I rationalize that? Can I see myself living those experiences and, and how would I feel? I love that. You know, and, and that, you know, put, truly trying to put yourself in their shoes. You, you can't really, but as an example, I, I constantly get into arguments with my mother about uh, the whole issue of immigration. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the, the problem with the, the, not to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but the problem with the issues that we're facing as a country today is that there, there is no answer and oftentimes, every answer is bad. So, you know, there's not a good, there's not a good choice. You know, every every choice, just like with COVID, mm-hmm. you know, keeping keeping people away from businesses and things is not the answer. Having people go out and be social is not the answer. Nothing is the answer. You know, there's going to be a downside to everything, Absolutely. and so therefore, it's easy to be judgmental of every position that's not your own. And the issue with, especially in California with immigration, is, well, I can see things from both sides. Mm-hmm. I, having lived there, um, it's, it's, a, it's a seriously difficult issue. Um, you can say, okay, well, you know, this is taking away from Americans' jobs. This is, you know, there are homeless people in the streets of, of our country that are vets that have served our country, that were born and raised in this country. Why would we be spending money to help immigrants as they come in when we have these issues in our own country? At the same time, you have these immigrants that are there. They are doing jobs that no California would take. They are keeping the price of all of our groceries down by their labor, mm-hmm. uh, and they are in the country. And if they get injured or or whatever, do you just leave them in, dying in the streets? You can't do that. Right. So you have to spend taxpayer money to deal with those issues. There is no right answer in there. It's The, the Pandora's box has been opened, mm-hmm. and so there's no way to, to kind of close it at this point. Um, so I think that makes things even worse for a situation now. The problems are so complex. People are so passionate mm-hmm. about them. And so the biases, people are so willing to fight for their biases, and they're willing to, to they're, they're much more willing to fight and die for their biases than they are to try to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and actually see where they're coming from. What I think is most interesting about that is 
when you think about what kind of culture we live in today, you know, we live in a drop culture where retailers will drop a product and then it'll be gone, you know, the next day. And then we live in a call out culture too, where if you speak, like you said earlier, you know, the, the wrong thing, you know, cause everybody says something that might be perceived as wrong. Sometimes these biases seem like they can be a safety net for people too. You know, well, you talked about them, they're not always bad. So is that part of cognitive bias where you're creating like a safety net for yourself, a place of familiarity that they can live in? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, uh, I, without getting into specifics, yeah, I mean, I think let's talk about, um, say, somebody's, somebody's belief system, you know, with their faith in, in something. And the acknowledgement that that they may um, they may decide to to no longer question because that conflicts with their belief that they have to have faith, and that creates a dissonance. Mm-hmm. And in, so, for people with that dissonance, they don't want to be sit in they don't want to be put in situations where they would have to call that into question because it's uncomfortable for them. So they will intentionally not put themselves in the position where they're with people or are faced with with ideas that conflict because they've already had at some point to make this decision that that they know there's a schism that they know that they can't rationalize a certain thing but that they're going to choose faith instead and they they that can't be tested too much so i'm curious then as, as you know in our profession we're working with designers we work with clients from all different types of people how do you recommend like talking to people when you feel like there might be a perceived cognitive bias so that you come at it from a um, helpful standpoint? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I think, you know, anytime you can perceive what someone else is thinking, the subtext of what they're saying, you are in a position of power in a conversation. Um, even if, and, and sometimes there's simply no winning. I mean, if, if you, if you can see that the person is, has biases, which are causing them to think irrationally, you're not going to be able to point out those biases and get them to think rationally. Believe you might as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You might as well just yell at the wall. Um, so therefore there are moments where, where you can't, and we've all had to deal with mm-hmm. building departments and jurisdictions where they were not going to see the light no matter what. And, um, and you have to work around that. And there will always be people in your life who will challenge that. And I think that maybe that's their purpose is to, you know, a truly, a true, someone who is truly on the path of open-mindedness will find other ways around, around the, the roadblocks in that case. Um, but I think there are certain things architects can do to kind of like make the, make the architectural process better. I th- you know, if we're going to say like, how do you how do you how do you bring open mindedness into architecture? I think that's a really slippery slope because it assumes we know how to build a building that can change people's perception. And I think they tried that. You know, the modernist movement they they tried to they tried to build architecture that forced people to have feelings, and it was brutal. I mean, truly. I mean, and and, uh, and I think what we do best is to try to inform the process. Like how can, how can biases inform the process? Um, and one of the ways that we can do that is that, so there's this thing called the Ikea effect, right? So the Ikea I effect. I don't know it, tell me. Okay, so the Ikea effect is that we, we prefer objects that we had a, we had a hand in creating. Mm. So mm-hmm. even if you, know, you, you, you buy this pot, this clay pot, and you paint it, and you'll, you, you'll 
tell your friends, look at this great pot. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's so much more valuable to you than the beautiful pot you actually paid for, you know, because you had a, a hand in creating it. And so I think um, as architects, we can, we can not do what architects in the past did, which was to sit up in their ivory towers and design. I would say that architects of the past tended to not be open-minded. Um, they tended to be dictatorial, the whole Ayn Rand thing. You know, they, they created, and there was a time for that. Um, but now, I think, given the fact that systems are so complex and we've got all these different consultants uh, that we deal with all the time, having um, using the IKEA effect to our advantage would be to to have every consultant have a piece that they themselves design, and then that you share you share with them their vision and you say, hey, can you could you take over this part of it? Could you see about designing it. that? And then everyone has a vested interest in the final product. They're not just like a tool that was used. They're actually part of the creation. Um, and I think that helps to inform the architecture, uh, definitely. Oh, I love that. Co-collaboration creates commitment. Yes. And it's so true. When yeah. people feel, it's no different than a group project. You know, you hearken back to your high school days. When people feel like they have something that they own, all of a sudden they're so much more invested. Correct, yeah. One of the um, things that we read when we were looking into our co-living white paper that we're working on is actually that in order to build successful communities, you need to allow for that co-creation to happen. And that's... One of the things that we do at MA Architects a lot is make sure that we have co-creation so that way people can feel like they have buy-in along the way so that they, when you get to the end product, it's not a surprise. It's something that, to your point, it's something that they had invested themselves into as well. Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, um, another bias that architects tend to fall <coughs> guilty, uh, well, everybody, but that affects architecture in general, um, is the anchoring bias, right? The, the tendency to put more weight onto the first information you learn about something. So that's why, to this day, there are architects out there that will not talk to their clients about ecologically friendly, environmentally friendly materials, methods, and means because they were originally very expensive. And so that's what the architects remember about that was their initial, their initial impression that clients didn't buy into it because it was too expensive. Well, now that the price barrier has been removed, they still think that way because they're falling back on this anchoring bias. And so challenging our own biases about like, okay, accepting new information, accepting new materials and means, new technology. Anchoring bias, I love yeah. that. Yeah, it just makes me feel like I have to continually push myself to educate myself I too. I was just gonna say that. I feel like education is the key to all of this. And that's even educating yourself, in my opinion, diversity I think is one of those words like authenticity that really has been saturated over the years. But it is, it's, be, it's being friends with older people and people younger than you. And it's being friends with, different ethnicities and different, you know, interests and different career paths and all of these things. And then all of a sudden you get pieces and parts of their experiences, their exposures. You know, you are the conversations you have. You are the people you entertain. Like they, that then becomes who you are. And the broader that breadth of friends and exposure is, the wider your mind becomes. I really, truly believe that. And it's so interesting, all of this idea. And I think the end goal is this idea of integrative complexity, where a measure of person's ability to accept and integrate multiple viewpoints is really the success. You know, that's where you want to be, where it's like, this is what I believe. I respect what you believe. I can see why maybe X, Y, and Z is true for you. But in my life, where I am right now, this is my truth. You know, um, someone once told me this really cool example that there are three levels of being open-minded. And the first is this idea of the camel. It's the 
bottom level of how you think, right? And it's this group think. It's carrying that hump of what you should and shouldn't do. And you stay in these groups and these, oh yeah, we all think you shouldn't do that. Yeah, we all think you should do this, you know? And then the next evolution is this idea of the lion. And you would liken it to almost like a Johnny Cash figure where it's like, screw everybody. <laughs> this is what I think and I don't care what you think. You know, you're so rebellious. Like you're so open-minded that you don't care what anyone thinks, right? But then the, the highest level of thinking is the child. And it's saying, this is what I know to be true today. But as I learn and as I play and as I expose, I will evolve. So what I believe today might not be true tomorrow, but I'm willing to see where my path takes me and what I learn along that journey to decide what my next level of thinking is. So not committing yourself to, I'm this woman who thinks this way and believes in this and does this. You know, tomorrow I might love something completely different. And that's okay. That's living. That's life. That's what it is to evolve, you know. And that, I think, that's what it feels like to really be alive. I agree. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we practice in foresight and futurism is that we take differing opinions and we overlap them to create new futures. I love that. By basically saying, here's two things that might be similar and one thing that's differential. And then how can we imagine a world where all of those things co- where all of those three things coexist together? I love that. Yeah, that's. I think that's a, always a really great question. You know, the the people who really who really uh, have changed the world, especially when it comes to technology or in innovation, they are the people who who ask a question, and when told it's impossible, said you know they say, well, let's just assume it's possible. How would we do it? I love that. And Kevin, I'm really curious. You were talking earlier about tendencies and that humans tend to think in certain ways that can lead to systemic deviations from making rational judgments, right? But you were saying, too, that a lot of us don't realize we're wearing these glasses. So if we're saying right now to our listeners, wake up, be more aware of the ways that you could be open-minded. I promise you, if you're listening, myself included, you could be more open-minded. No one reaches, to your earlier point, this like final destination where you're like, I am there. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey. <laughs> and that's what's fun about it and really yeah. exciting. But I'm curious what those tendencies, where do they usually arise from so people can be more conscious in their waking life of where they're getting those biases from? Um, well, I mean, what... I guess uh, just off the top of my head, I would think that anytime you find yourself being anxious about how someone else is appearing to you, if, if you find yourself in a conversation and you find that you're getting annoyed or you find that you're on edge or something that they're saying is triggering something within you, if you can catch yourself doing that and start to ask yourself, okay, what is it about what they're saying? that is challenging me in some way, you know, and, and try to really look outside yourself, step really outside yourself and say, okay, if in, in a real interaction, this shouldn't be bothering me. I'm allowing myself to be bothered. Why? What is the root cause of that? Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. There's um, a quote in the comics that I used to read growing up that, you know, you fear what you do not understand. And it seems like you talked about it a little bit earlier where the, the door uh, metaphor that you were talking about where you come up against something that should work in a certain fashion and when it doesn't, I think most people, their first reaction is um, a little bit of irritation. And I think when you find that feeling of irritation, it sounds like, or even fear, maybe that's the point where you really need to step outside yourself. We don't like being challenged as people, even when we challenge ourselves. Like we like things to move smoothly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that's the brain operating on autopilot. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, like we've talked about before, 
when you are your most challenged, you're also your most alive and you're learning the most and that. you're changing the most you know, if you will allow yourself to do that. Um, so I think that's, that's also a key aspect of someone who is, who is um, willing to open their mind even further is the person who, who, when faced with those challenges, look at them as challenges and not obstacles. I love that so much. I once had someone liken it to an EKG. My therapist was telling me that life is not meant to live as a flat line where everything is just so smooth, you're dead. So when you're seeing those spikes, you know, and you're feeling those highs and those lows and you're having these moments where you're like, wow, this is everything. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And you're bouncing back and forth. That's, you're being, you're alive. You know, you're, yeah. your heart is beating and you're really experiencing what it is to truly be alive. And that's how I feel about learning, you know, because you think you know something and then you learn something new and then now you have a different idea of what you know and it, it bounces back and forth. And I think that is the signature of being open-minded is having that EKG with that movement. Yeah. So it, it brings us to our final question. Already? And I know, already. Sorry. So, <laughs> you know, one thing that we always ask um, our guests at the very end is, you know, what are the signals and drivers of change when it comes to thinking about what's going to affect us, you know, three, five, ten years down the road? And so given that 2020 is the year of change and a call to humanity, I'm just curious, in your opinion, Kevin, like what are the signals, you know, those small things that happen or the drivers, the big things that happen that might be trained? that might be driving people to be more open-minded in the future? Well, I think this brings us back to the original uh, question we were talking about, which is the, the potential impacts that COVID will have on us outside of the physical, uh, you know, the security and safety and, uh, you know, aspects of it. You know, how will, how will it change us mentally? You know, how will... And, 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 I would say that right now, this very second, is probably the hardest time to be a futurist <laughs> because... It's also one of the most fun times, I'll just yeah. say. The most fun times. Um, well, there's certainly a lot of speculation. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that there's any evidence yet that, sh- that shows us where, where it's going to land. Um, it, I think it's really hard to determine. I certainly have my my preferences. I would like to see Share us. This. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I would hope that um, we we start seeing um, a movement towards spaces that engenders social interaction again, a movement towards uh, in person board games and away from chat rooms, mm-hmm. um, a movement towards you know seeing people take long walks. You know, and instead of quick car rides, um, oh, I love that. just you know more more picnics in the park and fewer you know uh, d- d- dash door dash delivery at your house that sort of thing. Back to basics. Back, Back to, to yeah, basics, yeah, I think, and I think there's a real beauty to that, right? And and there's a I don't know if I'm going to express my inner geek here, but there was a, a Star <laughs> Trek movie um, where it was one of the the Next Generation ones, right? Where where Picard, where they I forget exactly the whole thing, but basically there was this planet, and they thought that they were there observing the people on the planet, and that they were really much more advanced than these people and that they didn't want to give themselves away because because they were just supposed to be there observing but as it turns out the people knew they were there all the time because the people were actually far more advanced than than even the people from star trek were but they had chosen to go back and live an agrarian lifestyle because they realized the death trap that was technology and its eventual spiral. So they had all that technology below the surface, but they chose to live sort of this farming lifestyle instead 
Um, and I, I would like to see that as sort of like a utopian ideal, not that we should all go back and become farmers. That's not realistic. But we do see the birth of new urban farming. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that I think things have been changing in such a way over the past decade or more that they could springboard us into a brand new sort of eco-social revolution in architecture and just in, in, in human living. And um, I would be excited for that. Uh, and and we don't need to talk about the other possibilities because they can get pretty dark. Nope, I love that. Um, let's stay with the light. And so I one more thing. Three things our listeners could get off this podcast and do. Well, read more. Read things that you wouldn't think you should read. Ask your friends what they read and read what they're reading. Um, because you, we have a tendency to be fed news that we already agree with. That's what Google does. That's what Facebook does. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency to read things we're already interested in. Um, and so that doesn't, that limits us. That keeps us from growing because you never know what you might be interested in. So that's the first thing. Love it. Um, travel. Absolutely travel. And, and travel with your children as, as, at the minute they can interact with the world, travel with them. Show them stuff way outside of their comfort zone. Um, and then the third thing I would say... Um, I, does there need to be a third thing? I don't know. It's, it's those two things, I think. I, yeah. I had a cognitive bias that there should be three, but I'm willing to be open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I'm fixed. <laughs> I am a changed woman. Go ahead, Mark. Take it away. <laughs> well, Kevin, we just want to say thank you for being here and for your, this great conversation. Uh, thanks for sharing your insights and innovations that can help our listeners find the inspiration in, in their own lives to be thinking ahead and, and create change. We hope to hear more about these um, ideas and thoughts in the future in the days, and the weeks, and months to come. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at www.ma-architects.com, where we have an entire COVID toolbox up and running that covers the wide variety of sectors we serve. And if you want to continue the conversation, feel free to email me directly at markb at ma-architects.com. If you like what you heard today, please, please, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to hear what's coming in terms of innovations and trends from three to five years ahead. Once again, I'm one of your hosts for Make It Innovative, Mark Bryan. And I'm Sam Dickerson. I hope you can find the change you want to be to allow innovation to thrive in the way you live. And I hope you've now joined me for the Kevin Fan Club. I will be sending out emails and pins to your homes directly. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kevin, for being here. Thank you. Have a great day and make it innovative.